welcome to episode 194 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Wednesday, 11th of July, 2018. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed of PintBiz.com and you know how I said on the last show that I didn't know when the next one will be published? Well, I didn't. But then I wasn't expecting to upload another one just three days later. And here's the reason. I've got some audio which links in nicely with BMC's victory in Monday's team time trial at the Tour de France. As well as that, I've got an interview with a winner of a different kind. Mike Christensen tops Salt Lake City's leaderboard for the most bike share rides. But that's one for after the break. First, I've got an interview with Professor Bert Blocken. He's a Go Faster Against the Air specialist, and he's co-authored a great paper that has appeared in, wait for it, the Journal of Wind Engineering and Industrial Aerodynamics. Now, if you missed that particular issue, then let me summarise. Using a whole bunch of Cray supercomputers, Professor Blocken and a surprisingly long list of colleagues put a peloton of 121 mini terracotta cyclists into a wind tunnel and discovered the most energy-efficient positions in the pack. Drag in the middle of a densely packed peloton goes down to 5-10% to of the drag of an isolated cyclist riding at the same speed. That's a huge difference from all previous studies, which have reckoned on reductions of 50-70%. to Of course we don't all ride in packs, so I asked the aptly named professor whether there are any real-world applications for his findings. It's a fascinating interview, but before we tuck in behind Professor Blocken, I've got to fess up. The dog barking in a couple of parts of the audio is our guide dog puppy, unhappy at having to go to bed. Anyway, it's off in the distance and not constant, so I hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment of the interview. I am with Professor Bert Blocken of the Eindhoven University of Technology. And Bert, uh, thank you for talking to me. You're an aerodynamics specialist, so you're somebody in the Netherlands uh, who... uh, is looking at the kind of cycling that's not the kind of cycling that you see all the time outside your uh, your university. It, it's something that's to do with what we see more of in the the Tour de France. Yeah, yeah, indeed, that's uh, it's professional cycling, and then um, indeed focused, um, yeah, mostly on on the aerodynamics, aerodynamic interaction between cyclists, uh, aerodynamic optimization of a single cyclist, but also aerodynamic interaction, for example, between a cyclist and, and a nearby motorcycle or a cyclist and a, and a team car, this kind of uh, studies is what we're doing. So this is something called the, the Peloton project, yes? Yes, yes, that's our latest uh, our latest project that has uh, just been completed. And um, well, yeah, it is, um, actually it's a very interesting project, but um, I think uh, something that, that I mentioned also in the scientific article, but I think that... Uh, has not been very well uh, repeated in the media is that this is a yeah a first step yeah so uh, I think the results are quite quite interesting but you should look at them in the right context and I think uh, this is something maybe that in this call we can uh, we can also clarify so what so what because I saw you in Le Keep they they used some of the graphics and there was a, a press release yeah, from yeah. A, your your institution which I'm assuming is where you mm-hmm. keep got yeah. this from so what 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 has been right. missing what 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 is the context that we need Bert? well yeah actually yeah, what what we investigated is um, um, a peloton of 121 cyclists quite tightly packed and where every cyclist stays at his or her position so they don't uh, move from one position to another 
and they drive on straight roads, uh, flat roads, so no um, um, no no hills and no mountains, mm-hmm. um, and there is um, yeah no or very little crosswind. Uh, so it's a bit of an, an idealized situation. Mm. And then what we found is that uh, when you are a cyclist well embedded in the peloton, that means somewhat to the middle at the rear part, that your aerodynamic resistance is only five to ten percent of um, the one of a cyclist that is cycling, uh, cycling alone. And that value is quite dramatically lower than what you find in, in the scientific literature and in, in many cycling books where they say it's like 50 to 70 percent. Mm. And so, uh, the reason is actually... Uh, sorry, yeah, the... so, so basically what you're saying, your research is saying that the, the aerodynamic uh, benefit of riding in a pack, riding in a peloton is far greater mm-hmm. than than currently understood. Yes, and and the reason is actually um, twofold. Um, one is that the current understanding is uh, is based on old wind tunnel tests of four cyclists in a row, where um, the people doing the measurements saw that the third cyclist and the fourth cyclist had about fifty percent of the air resistance of uh, the first one. And from that, uh, people have been thinking, okay, then it will probably be the same for the sixth one, the fifth one, and the sixth one, and the seventh one, and by extrapolation for the whole peloton. Um, so that has appeared in cycling books, and from there it has been taken over and cited in other books and in scientific articles and so on. And even if you go to, to Wikipedia these days, I think it still says also a number like that, like 50 uh, to 40 to 50%. But if you write number three in, in a row of three cyclists, or we have a peloton of 100 people in front of you, of course, that has to make a big difference. And, and that was actually the reason for us to, to start, uh, start this project. So then we ended up with this 5 to 10%, which honestly, um, I found um, yeah, myself being surprised as well. And that's why, apart from the computer simulations, we also set up independently a wind tunnel test, and the wind tunnel test actually gave the same result. But I need to mention that uh, because if you translate these 5 to 10% to cycling speed, that would mean that when the peloton is cruising at uh, 54 kilometers an hour, that you in the belly of the peloton would feel that you're cycling uh, 12 to 17 kilometers an hour. And that seems very low. And, and I've had actually... Um, yeah, some cyclists that are also scientists saying that, uh, okay, these are numbers they recognize from their time in the peloton. But I've also had the professional cyclists saying that, um, and, and I think they somehow yeah, were misled. They're saying that, okay, this, this is not true. This is not what we feel in reality. And, and that, I think, is about the context. So what we simulated is, um, yeah, indeed, you could see it as some kind of minimum um, because it's only aerodynamic drag that we investigated. We did not look at, at the, the rolling resistance. We did not look at drivetrain resistance. Mm-hmm. They are much less, of course, than the aerodynamic drag. But if aerodynamic drag decreases a lot, of course, these become more important. Uh, for sure. And the, the bike and, industry yeah. is, is forever making you know more aerodynamic bikes. So aero is important. Yeah. So you, you've used... I mean, the photographs I've seen are you're using scale-down figures of cyclists mm-hmm. um yep. they look a, a, a lot like china's terracotta soldiers you know they're yeah. kind of they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're lined yeah. up they're mini yeah. and and, yeah. and, and yeah. Uh, are they made of clay what are they made of well actually um and, and and that the first time i saw them being set up in the wind tunnel the first thing i thought the first word that came to my mind was indeed terracotta Mm-hmm. Um, and, and interestingly, they're indeed made up largely of ceramic material. So this terracotta um, comparison is, is not even that far from reality. Um, but indeed, they're lined up very, in a very regular arrangement. I've had many questions saying, uh, with people saying, okay, why did you use this arrangement? Why not a random arrangement? Well, yeah, if you use a random arrangement, the question is, of course, which one do you choose? Uh, there's an infinite number of arrangements possible. And... Of course, we cannot do an infinite number of simulations and, and wind tunnel tests, and we don't have infinite budget, unfortunately, let alone infinite time. But the reason why in science and engineering, and, and I think yeah, you, you will be familiar with, with that, why we often choose for regular arrangements is to eliminate as many parameters as possible 
because it's already a very complicated problem and, and that should allow us to draw more clear conclusions. But then the question is, is this realistic? It's no, it's some kind of like average representation of uh, what you can find in a peloton that as here is driving on a straight road. Because some uh, cyclists have, uh, have really, um, yeah, some, some gave quite some heavy criticism on the work. They say, okay, we, we don't feel that kind of 5% or 10%. But that's of course true because in reality, uh, like in, in races in Tour de France, you have a lot of twists and turns and bends. Mm -hmm. And then the peloton stretches out. Yeah? That's what they call the accordion effect. And then, of course, you have a completely different arrangement than what we studied in the winter. And then your resistance, of course, becomes much higher. And, and you will have this um, yeah, accordion effect and thereby cyclists at the end will have to accelerate to keep up with the rest. And then, of course, your, your power, uh, your energy consumption goes up quite a lot. And so what we actually here have as numbers is yeah, some kind of minimum or something you can get maybe when you have a, um, the races in Qatar at the beginning of the year where you have very long straight roads. Uh, and if you then can hide in the belly of the peloton, then actually you should uh, find our numbers. So, so which wind tunnel were you actually using for your, your terracotta cyclists? Um, yeah, that is the, the new wind tunnel at Eindhoven University of Technology. Ah, okay, so it's your um, own one. We, so it's, uh, it's not a commercial one. It's not, yes. It's... No, 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 it's not a commercial one. Um, so this is also the wind tunnel where we, um, yeah, where we are testing uh, professional cycling teams like the, the Lotto Jumbo team and, and Team BMC, actually, that... Uh, uh, were recently with us and that won the team time trial today. Mm -hmm. so these are uh, actually yeah, very nice, uh, very nice sports uh, news for us also to to receive that. Of course, it's just a very small part of the puzzle. But uh, when when uh, yeah, the head of performance of Team BMC sends you an email to thank you for the support after such a win, then uh, well, that's that's quite nice. That's very kind of them. It is. Now you said before that this 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 puzzle was complicated. So I'm not a mathematician. I'm not a, an aerodynamicist. So why are you having to use so many supercomputers for this? Why is this problem yeah. so complex? So the release is talking about how incredibly yeah. complex this is. Yes, I think that is, that is indeed the key question. Um, because that's also the reason why, why this, all of this research took, uh, took almost one year and a half. Because if you, if you look at it and they set up in the winter, you say, okay, you can do that in a few days. But, but if you want to do it with computer simulation, and that was actually your starting point, um, if you want to calculate aerodynamics of a cyclist or, or another athlete in a good way, you need to model what happens very close to the surface. And, and what I mean with very close to the surface is a fraction of a millimeter. Um, so at surfaces, when, when flow flows over any kind of body, be it a car or a football or an athlete, at the surface you have a very thin layer that is called boundary layer. And that thin layer actually is the most important one because it actually um, determines whether the flow will stay attached to your body for some time or whether it will detach from your body. When as it detaches very early, and we call that flow separation, that will cause you a large amount of resistance, a large amount of suction. If you are aerodynamic on your bike and you have, for example, a very good skin suit and so on, it will stay, the flow will stay attached longer to your body. But in order to model that, you need to put calculation cells. So you need to actually calculate what is happening in this fraction of a millimeter. And in our case, it was 2% of a millimeter, so 20 micrometers, uh, that we actually still modeled. And that we found after many, many tests of, of months that you need this very, very tiny cells, computational cells, where we solve all the equations, to have an accurate representation of what really happens and, and to be able to get results that are comparable with, with wind tunnel tests. Yeah, and that means that if you have a peloton of 121 riders, uh, which is um, yeah quite a large distance, it's, I think it's about uh, 20, maybe maybe even 30 meter in length. Um, if you put them put them closer together, but you have cells of, of and, and, yeah 20 micrometer, that means indeed that you will have a lot of cells and you have a large um, geometry, but even the tiniest details are important. And that actually meant that we ended up with almost 3 billion cells to, to calculate such a problem. Wow. And so you're using Cray supercomputers to crunch all these numbers? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we very um, our own uh, computer, quite computing cluster in the department. Um, yeah, would, even if we would, would 
let's say, kick everybody out and just use a whole cluster for ourselves, even mm. then it would not be powerful enough. Wow. So that's when actually uh, Ansys got us in touch with Gray because they, they worked together on, on several other projects already for a long time. And then the people at K were, were fantastic in, uh, in supporting us with this project because even for them it was a challenge um, because it's also something that they never calculated before. And something with this kind of huge uh, range of, of spatial scales uh, going from a 20 micrometer to, to a computational domain that is uh, several hundreds of meters. So that was also for them a, a tough nut to crack. But they did it in, in a very good way. Mm. So um, that... What this, what your work shows, I guess, is that uh, the lone breakaways that we see in the Tour de France and other Grand Tours are even more amazing than we we thought, because the amount of work yes. that they're having to go through yeah. is even greater than we that we thought, because they're just really, a, a, you know, a long breakaway must be killing these guys. You're absolutely right. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and this is actually. The, the, the positive reaction that, um, or the positive um, and the respectful thing, I think that, that also cyclists should remember from this research, is actually that even more credit is given to the guy that breaks away. Mm. Um, so we've had actually very many positive comments about the research. Actually, well, unfortunately, we also got two very negative comments of cyclists that found that we were disrespectful towards them, indicating that they, um, yeah, <laughs> they have no... Uh, no effort to do in the peloton and, and so media wrote that uh, it's easier to go uh, to ride in the peloton than to go uh, and, and buy uh, with your bicycle uh, to the bakery shop and of course that these are things that are, that are well not not true um, because there is no straight road from from start to yeah. finish over 200 kilometers it's also but anyway, normally difficult to you... ride in a pack it's it's that's that's uh, super skillful to to be able to ride yeah, that absolutely. close anyway even for like yeah. just a mile it's incredibly skillful yeah yeah and it is a cordial effect also that is killing. Yeah, if, you, if you're at the back, always do it. Because I know that from, from my own cycling years, that um, yeah, every time it goes through a bend, the peloton stretches out so much, and then you really have to put all your effort to accelerate and to, to bridge the, the gap that has fallen between you and, and, the, re, and the, 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 the uh, row in front of you. But, but you are absolutely right. I think that is the best and um, uh, most respectful conclusion that, that there is to take, indeed, that these, these guys that do the breakaways and are successful, that is just such a fantastic, amazing effort. And I think that deserves all appreciation. Mm. Now, your previous work, Bert, includes analysing that famous, well, it's 2016, wasn't it? The famous, uh, what, what I consider quite a dangerous uh, descent of Chris yeah. Froome. On the, and I, at the time, yeah. I said, please don't copy this, mm -hmm. you know, to my, my, my cycling son. I said, don't copy what he's doing. So, but you, yeah, you yeah, analysed yeah. that, you, you were the study that uh, got Chris Froome on the Pérusso descent, and, and, and what was your conclusion that 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 position was good or bad? Well, well, actually, yeah, we in the beginning we started this research first. We compared two positions: a regular descent position and Froome's position, uh, and we found that Froome's position was not better aerodynamically. Um, and then uh, yeah, we also posted that on social media and. We got, um, yeah, um, let's say many positive comments, but we also got very negative comments. And I even know it's the first time in my life that I actually got hate mail, yeah. and quite a lot of it. Uh, and people were, some people were so, um, yeah, um, agitated and also saying that, well, it's impossible and that you, um, with your small team, you just do a study and, and you think that you know better than Deep Sky and so on and so on. Mm. But I think those people forgot that, that Chris Froome himself, after the stage, said that this was something he never tested mm. and that it was just a hunch of the moment. I, 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 I do believe him. I, I, for one, would like to see that. <laughs> no more descents like that. It just looked incredibly dangerous. Yeah. So if, yeah, if, if your research can say yeah. there was no benefit, fantastic. Uh, now, Boardman Cycles, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with, well, so Chris Boardman uh, is famous mm, yeah. for, for his, you know, trying to get aero on on his bike over many years now his his brand mm -hmm. his his bike shop uh, hq in the uk now has a wind tunnel yeah. at at its bike shop mm -hmm. in, in england so do yeah. you think testing in a wind tunnel has consumer potential yeah that's, that's a good question um hmm. it, it's um I would say either yes or no. Uh, I think it really depends on 
um, the type of consumers you get. Huh? Of course, you can get the, the pro cycling teams. Um, in our internal, we even got um, amateur athletes. Uh, but then they, they test for just a very short period of time because of yeah, the, the costs associated with that. And then, of course, you also try to, to be super efficient so it doesn't cost them too much. Um, but, um, yeah, that look, looking back at myself 15 years and 15 kilograms ago when I was doing a lot of racing, uh, I, I wouldn't have been able to, to, to afford a winter test. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for the, for the regular um, recreational cyclist, it will be difficult. Um, but but um, if you look at, at the pro teams and the certain material tests, uh, and that you, what you refer to, Akis Bortman with, with his bicycle brand, yeah, then I think it's um, if, if his investment costs for this winter were not too high, uh, then uh, yeah, I think this, this uh, would have been a good step. Mm-hmm. So tell me about your background in, in racing then. What, what kind of level were you at and what were you, what were you doing? Oh, uh, yeah, there was, was uh, let, let's say, the lowest level. Uh, so, um, yeah, it was, was for me, it, I only did a few races. It was mainly mainly training. We started with a group of friends, but then uh, um, actually at some point this, this was split up. And then um, I went actually to, to a racing team with uh, people that um, were not doing that many races, just just uh, yeah, a few per year, but they were extremely passionate. So I really learned a lot from, from these guys. And um, yeah, they would also um, yeah do do let's say racing tours of, of 200 kilometers um, on a on a regular day. Um, and, and yeah, I think many of us um, did 10,000 kilometers per year, which of course, if you compare that to professional cyclists, is not that much. Um, but for somebody, yeah, for people with with a full-time job on the on the uh, other end, um, yeah, it took quite some planning to to be able to. Uh, to get those kilometers uh, um, done in a year, but um, maybe if if, if I may, if I can come briefly back to your question about Chris Fuhrman his descent mm. position. Mm-hmm. What is very nice actually afterwards is that uh, last year, when we actually put a LinkedIn post in in well in, in four pieces, um, we got actually a very nice Facebook post by Peter Sagan, who um, wrote in, in in public on his uh, Facebook that uh, he found the study very interesting. And that he also found it even more interesting that the, the position that came best out of our research was exactly the one he was using. <laughs> and, and, and that is actually true. <laughs> and now if you've seen Chris Foom descending in the Giro d'Italia, mm-hmm. Chris Foom has also changed his position to actually the, the one that we found best. So um, I, I still do think that uh, Chris Foom was being honest when he said, okay, I didn't test this before in an interval, because you see now that he has changed it. So mm-hmm. I think that uh, yeah, these guys are just trying to stay on top of everything that is done in, in terms of science and, and cycling, mm-hmm. which I think is uh, yeah certainly something that will bring them benefit. That's a good point, actually, because that, that descent, I hadn't actually thought of that, that that descent that in effect won him the Giro on that amazing breakaway. Uh, he, yeah. he wasn't using that 2016 style at all. He was using traditional... I mean, he's a fantastic descender, but he was using a traditional style. He, he wasn't going back to that one, and that's, that's got to be good. Yeah, he had some some uh, parts here where he was also sitting on the top tube, but then not with his chest really bent over mm-hmm. his steering wheel like he did in in, uh, in the Tour in 2016, but actually very much stretched out and, and uh, really sitting against the, the, the saddle um, with, with his back. And, and that actually is, yeah, of, of all the positions we tested, more than 15, uh, we found that it's clearly superior to, to all others. And uh, it's, it's also the one actually that Primoz Roglic used last year when he won the stage in, uh, in the Tour de France near the end. Um, and and yeah, Peter Sagan actually has been using it already for many years, even before we started this investigation. Mm-hmm. So has the, the, the current research, the, the Peloton project, has that been published in an academic journal yet? Uh, yes, yes. We, uh, we published that... Um, well, we sent it in uh, quite quite a while ago in uh, um, yeah, one of the leading journals in this field that, that publishes um, yeah, quite regularly stuff on aerodynamics of athlete vehicles and so on. And that's called the Journal of Wind Engineering and Industrial Aerodynamics. So that's quite a long uh, title. Um, but there actually we got, um, yeah, we got surprisingly fast and surprisingly positive comments because as scientists were always a bit scared to read the comments of the anonymous referees, because they can be very harsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this uh, uh, occasion, we actually got one referee that 
um, yeah, said, wow, what a great paper with like five exclamation marks. <laughs> and this is something I had never seen in my 20 years in, in scientific research. So that was also very nice. And, and still he gave some, or he or she gave some very useful comments for us to improve the paper. Excellent. Now, d- d- does this, this research, does it have any applications away from professional cycling? Just maybe the, the, the mathematics mm. behind it? Or is this something that is purely going to be really of interest to fellow academics, aero academics like your, your, yourself, or people who are genuinely yeah. riding in, in the peloton? Yeah, well, um, um, I think it, it's in, in terms of um, looking at cycling practice, uh, I think that there's, there's two things. Uh, one is that um, um, these numbers give you like a minimum of what you can achieve in a peloton. Huh? Supposing beat had a flat road and not too many bends and so on. But maybe more importantly is that um, there are quite some cycling teams that use mathematical models for breakaways. And uh, some of these models have also been published. And, and earlier this year, I had to actually review one as, as anonymous referee. And these models actually take into account the whole stage. With, with all the twists and turns and the elevations and so on, they take into account rider fatigue, um, metabolism, um, um, wind, uh, speed, wind direction, relative humidity, temperature, and so on and so on. But they assume that the peloton chases uh, a cyclist, a breakaway cyclist, with 70% of resistance, which is way too high. Um, so I think that is one of the most direct outcomes of our research is that they have to change exchange these 70 percent by maybe 10 percent and then uh, yeah the team captain will then have to say to his rider to escape at a completely different part of the race so the diagram that i've seen which shows the various um, riders spots in the peloton which get the the most benefit do you think that professional cyclists even without understanding any of the technology, none of the mathematics, are they always going for that sweet spot anyway? Are they, are they, they, they intuitively know that the, the spot that you have identified as the best, do you think that is the spot that most people, most pro riders actually want to get into anyway? Um, well, no, not necessarily. I think it, it also depends, depends a bit on, on the type of rider. In, in, here in Belgium, we had... Um, say 15 years ago, uh, Peter van Petegem, who was a fantastic rider. And he was known for always being really at the end of the peloton. And that was just his, his riding style. And, and he did that um, for the, always the largest part of the race. But if now you look at um, yeah, yellow jerseys into the France or, or orange, uh, pink, sorry, in, uh, in the Giro, you often see that they are much more uh, to the front. But you sometimes also see that they go toward the edges of the peloton. And I understand why because if there is a cash that's the, mm-hmm. the easiest way to escape um, but what our study now shows is that these edges actually have a yeah, resistance that is more or less two to three times larger than just a position one position away from the edge so, so my, would be my yeah yeah my, my follow-up question to that in that case and Bert is do you think in future we're going to see riders now going for your sweet spot so they're going to be they're going to be analyzing the diagram that you produced, mm-hmm. and that's where they want to be from now on. It's going to be a lot of jostling to get into that exact position. Yeah, well, I think some will. Um, there are still huge differences in, um, let's say, uh, adoption of scientific results from team to team. Uh, there are a few teams that are extremely uh, focused on on everything that comes out of scientific research and to implement it. And then there's also the two teams I'm working with are are two teams like that. But um, you also have teams that, um, yeah, that's, well, with with all due respect, because it doesn't sound maybe that respectful, but they still raised like 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, yeah, so I think indeed some will will adjust their their strategy and some will completely ignore the, the work that has been done. Yeah. I can imagine that. Yes. Now, how how can people find out more? What what's uh, apart from searching for that incredibly long winded um, uh, journal, which I'm sure is is pay only? Mm-hmm. Wh- where else can people public access? Where can people find out about this project? Is there a website they can go to? Um, there's there's no website at this point. Um, there have been a few press releases, but of course these are very short. Um, but I've written on, on LinkedIn, I've written, written a, um, let's say, a shorter version of the scientific article and, and stripping it of too much uh, 
scientific terminology um, and, and also putting um, yeah, the more or less the same perspectives and, and, and putting, let's say, uh, that they also mentioned limitations like were done in the article. So that is something that, that people can, uh, um, can, can be pointed to. Um, and, and apart from that, yeah, there's been a lot of discussion going on in the past days over uh, social media. So I, I try to keep, uh, stay um, um, up to date with that and also answer uh, questions if, if questions arise. Um, so more questions, of course, are always welcome. Okay, so I'll put the, the LinkedIn um, URL in the, the show notes. Uh, but tell yeah. me, and I'm to tell everybody, t- tell us what is your your handle on Twitter. What, what, what are you called on Twitter? And I'll uh, uh, maybe some people will follow you on that. Yeah, uh, so my um, yeah my Twitter name is quite easy. It's at uh, and then Bergblokken. So my first and my last name just written um, without spaces or without dots. So just behind each other. Thanks to Professor Bert Blocken there. Before introducing my next guest, here's a word or two from our show sponsor. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And hi, everybody, it's David. And I am here, well, you know why I'm here. I'm here to talk about our longtime loyal and fantastic sponsor, Jensen USA, at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Remember, that's J-E-N-S-O-N usa.com. Now, what's Jensen USA? Well, if you don't know by now, you should. JensenUSA.com is the place where you're going to find all of the things that you need for your complete cycling lifestyle. Complete bikes, mountain bikes, road bikes, gravel grinders, everything in between. Components, apparel, accessory, tools, shoes, really gifts, everything you can imagine that you would need for your cycling lifestyle. And we're not talking about off-branded stuff. We are talking about name brands that you know, love, and need for your cycling lifestyle. You're going to find those name brands at incredible low prices, and that's all going to be coupled with unparalleled customer service. If you haven't been to Jensen USA before, I urge you to do it right now and every time you need something for cycling because they're going to have it at great prices and you're going to be very, very satisfied with their customer service. Go ahead and check them out. That's at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Our thanks to Jensen USA for supporting the spokesman cycling roundtable podcast and our thanks to you for supporting our sponsor, Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, back to you. Thanks, David. And we're back with some audio I grabbed in the street last week in Salt Lake City, Utah. I talked with transit specialist Mike Christensen downtown and we discussed his winning use of the city's bike share system. We might get a little bit of um, trams coming past here. Uh, We might get some um, strange audio from the, the crossings here. And we'll certainly get a lot of traffic here. And that yeah. laughter you heard there is my Christensen. Did yep. I get that right? Christensen? Yep, yep. Christensen. Christensen, thank you. Um, and you, I'm in Salt Lake City. We're outside of Starbucks. So that's a tram going past, which you're, you're loving that because yes. you kind of want that to yes. happen. Yes. Uh, that's uh, a main part of how I get around Salt Lake City. I've been living in Salt Lake City ever since 2003, and when I first moved here, I was kind of doing the typical uh, having to commute to get to work and... uh, In a car? In a car, yes, in a car. And let's see, for a while, my longest commute was 25 miles, so about a half hour drive in the morning and then a half hour drive back home at night. and. I didn't really realize it at the time, but that was kind of, the, the drive was the first, was the worst part of my day. And, uh, although I didn't realize it at the time. And then later on, I uh, decided that I needed more education and I wanted to go to graduate school. And one of my big uh, interest was in public transit. And that's because when I was younger, I spent time in Germany, first as an exchange student and then a couple years later as a missionary for almost two years. And while I was there, I realized that there were people living lifestyles that didn't involve 
uh, having to use a car to get everywhere. Euro. Yes. Euro lifestyle. And I realized that they weren't suffering any lack of having a good life, and in some cases, they were having better lifestyles. And uh, so with that as kind of a, a interest that had been in my head for years, I decided to uh, work on a Master of City and Metropolitan Planning at the University of Utah. And as I thought about doing that, I thought, well, I could see a lot of, of mistakes being made in public transit in Salt Lake City. And often they were just little mistakes that were made because the person doing the planning uh, wasn't actually taking transit themselves in their regular lives. Basically, they would commute in with a car and sit in their cubicle all day and then commute home at the end of the day and they were not having an actual public transit experience themselves. So I went into my, my graduate education with the thinking that I wanted to be a competent professional and actually live the lifestyle that I was planning for. Uh, so I started experimenting as much as possible using myself as a guinea pig and using public transit as much as possible. And uh, 2013 was actually a big year for me personally uh, as far as transportation goes for two reasons. One, that's when our uh, light rail line that connects from downtown Salt Lake City to the Salt Lake City International Airport was opened. And that actually goes through my neighborhood. So that's where I walk to every day when I want to go downtown and, and catch the train. And then the other big thing that happened that year is our local bike share system, uh, Green Bike, uh, launched. And when Green Bike launched, I really liked the idea, but at first I was hesitant to pay the $75 um, annual membership fee because I was a poor graduate student and I thought, well, would I really use it enough to justify the $75? And then I thought, well, I, I want to be a transportation planner and this is an opportunity to experiment on myself. And so I got the membership and quickly became the most frequent user and I, after, what is it, five years? I'm like more than that. Yeah, five years. I'm still the most frequent user. Do you mean that, according to the city, you are the most frequent user? Well, or do you think this? You you just think when you are? what when you log into when you're an annual member and you log into the online interface, there is a leaderboard that oh, like shows Strava, but Strava yeah, users of that, that shows how many trips you've taken and it it resets at the start of the year and it also shows how many miles you've ridden although the miles isn't that accurate because it's based on how much time the bike is checked out so you can rack up your miles just by checking the bike out and having it sit there uh, but yeah I've, I've used it very frequently and found that it is the quickest way to get around in downtown Salt Lake City so you're using the light rail, the tram. Right. Then you're getting, so you're not, because I've come in from the airport and I've used the light rail a number of times coming into Salt Lake. It is, for an American city, it's quite unusual to go yeah. from the airport to downtown. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely fantastic. Euro style, it's to be able to do that. But you also see lots of people with bikes yes. getting on. So you're not taking your A bike on the train. Right. You are being multimodal, but exactly. are using the yes. MAAS, Mobility as a Service. Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm stepping off the train and walking 100 feet and then checking out a bike share bike. And so you're bad for the bike trade <laughs> because you're not buying a bike, Mike. Well, I... I you're the worst customer. You're just, you're, <laughs> we are our worst nightmare. Somebody who is really using bike share a lot. Well, I, I do own a bike. And I do take it on rides from time to time I'll myself. <laughs> but it, what, what you're, you're kind of leading into an argument that I hear a lot when I'm trying to present bike share to people because they say, oh, I already have a bike. Why would I need bike share? And then I point out the really awesome thing about 
Well, they're of among several things. One of the most awesome things is the fact that with Bikeshare, you can check out a bike and you don't have to worry about it before and you don't have to worry about it after. It doesn't have to be, you don't so, have to worry about it getting stolen. Exactly. You don't have yeah. to worry about it getting stolen. You don't have to worry about any maintenance. In fact, sometimes it's kind of a guilty pleasure because you can ride along and go, oops, I just rode through some glass, but oh, I'm going to check in the bike now and it's not my problem anymore. And so I always have to explain to people that, well, there are some really great advantages to uh, not not having to worry about locking up your own bike and worrying about it whether or not it's secure and it's also great because it's highly adaptable because uh, I may not have brought my own bike downtown and then later on in the day realize that I need a bike to get where I'm going and so bike share feels that that need where you can get a bike almost instantaneously if you need one. And I mean, I, when I came here at the beginning of the week and I wanted to get around, I was walking between stations. I mean, they are everywhere. They are, they are yeah. very frequent. Mm -hmm. They don't seem to be uh, either full or empty. They seem to be kind of, are they curated? Are they taking bikes out and yes. putting them in other places? Because yes. they look like a doing, good system. They do balancing. Uh, I think they have somebody on duty from about 6 a.m. to about midnight uh, looking to keep an eye on which stations need to be rebalanced. So uh, it's, it's a very good system. Uh, it's not that big. We only have, I think we have 33 stations now in our downtown area. But they are most of them are fairly close together and so it makes it convenient if you did get to a station and it was either empty or full uh, you wouldn't have very far to go to to get to another station so in other words what you're talking about is the it's, it's the it's the useful phrase that's used a lot is the last mile exactly. solution here yes. so you get the tram from the airport and you want to get you know that's the spine you want to get to the ribs then you take a bike and out you go on yes. the on the ribs yeah yep so as a transportation planner that is your ideal yes uh, and I have as I travel around the country uh, lately I've, I've traveled a lot on Amtrak and found that uh, combining Amtrak with bike share is very convenient because uh, well, when you have luggage with you, you can't really use bike share. But once you've dropped off your luggage at, at your hotel or whatever, then bike share makes it very easy to get uh, different places. And it's also a very fun way to get around. And so far, I've ridden 22 different bike share systems in the U.S. And You're probably up to the leader table on that as well, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm actually... Uh, if you know Clarence Eckerson, yes. who does street films, yes. I think he's up to about 28, but he's also uh, does a lot of international stuff, and so he's, he's a lot of his are international ones. But uh, some, there's some bike shares that haven't been that good of a, an experience, but uh, uh, most of them are pretty good. And uh, the, the biggest complaint I had was I was in uh, Greensboro, uh, North Carolina last month and had a layover uh, transferring or changing trains. And so I tried out the Lime bikes that they have there. And the big problem I had there is that, well, I'm six foot two and the seat would only go up a couple inches. And so I was riding around downtown Greensboro with my knees going up towards my face and uh, so I haven't been too impressed with the uh, the fully dockless bike share systems that just come into cities and basically flood them with a whole bunch of bikes and it's they seem to be more coming at it as well let's see if we can gather a whole bunch of data on where people travel and make money off of that rather than than actually focus on what people's transportation needs actually but you might are. feel differently if the bike was bigger yes i also might feel differently if the bike was bigger because 
just from my experience is the, 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 the first bikes that go in from these Dopplers very often are the smaller ones, the, the ones from China. Right. And then second, third generation, you get the, the ones that actually fit Westerners. Right, right. So that's, that's very often been the case. So yeah. the, the Mobikes, the Ofos, they come in, they're small, and then gradually people complain, like you. <laughs> and like if you're in the Netherlands, you know, you wouldn't, you would never chance. You'd have to have bigger ones. Right. And then the bigger ones come in, and then all of a sudden people who couldn't use them start using them. So that's what you need. You need the bigger one. Yes. And so far, probably the the bike share equipment that I've been most uh, impressed with is social bikes. Yeah. And I feel like they have a good mix between having actual stations and then also having the ability to lock the bike up anywhere that you need and they also have electric bikes yes and they now yes now have electric like bikes san francisco junk, i think junk. a few other i think i think yeah and the, the 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 one problem another problem that i have with the fully dockless bikes is um, i don't want to always have to look at the app to know where bikes are at. And so I like there being stations to a certain extent. So for example, uh, you know, get off a train, walk 100 feet, and there's bikes there. So I like that kind of, uh, it, well, the, the fully dockless systems and the fact that you have to look at the app to find out where a bike is at. It's kind of like having a bus system with no designated stops and you just kind of like wave it down. It's the it's there there are reasons why why we do things certain ways in, in public transit and uh, having fixed nodes. Having fixed nodes is they're having like actual geographic locations where you know that However, that's also a disbenefit because that's one of the benefits of having a motor car or your own bicycle is that you haven't got fixed nodes. You can, you, even if you can't, right. even if you really can't do this genuinely, you feel as though the world's your oyster. You can go where you like because you can drop down where you want. You can pick up where you want. You can go where you want. And one of the biggest downsides for many people of transit, public transit, not to you, but to many people, <laughs> is that fixed station. Right. They don't yes. like that because that. Cause that that nails them down to a location. And even if they've got to walk 200 meters, I don't have to do that in my car or even on my bike. It's just there, I hop in, I, right. I, I, I go. So what, why, you're, you're a public transit guy, that's why you're saying fixations are good. But for most people, that's not good. It's, well, it's one of the great debates in transportation. And it will be interesting to see how that uh, plays out in the future with uh, services like Uber and whether or not we ever, we ever have fully autonomous vehicles. Uh, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. But I am, I am a big fan of, of Jarrett Walker, uh, who uh, wrote the book Human Transit, and he really likes to push the efficiencies of having nodes in transportation and how that that allows the, uh, the the system to be more efficient because it's not having to basically stop in front of everyone's uh, door uh, which wouldn't work uh, very well for public transit are you now gonna be getting a bike or are you gonna get the tram first and then you get a bike or uh, depends on I'll have to think about whether or not I need groceries tonight because if I need groceries then I'll hop on a bike and go down to the Harmon's grocery store before I come back and get on the tram. <laughs> so with your 75 bucks a year that's unlimited? It's unlimited hour-long rides. Up to, oh, up to, that's really if good up to an hour. go over an hour then it's five dollars for every additional mo don't hour. Most cities, I mean certainly London is half an hour. Yeah in well, in Salt Lake City, if you're an annual member, it's an hour. If you pay for a, pay a $7 day membership, then it's 30 minutes. Right. Uh, so. so you're, get, you're getting bang for your buck here. Then. Oh, if yes. You're, if you're getting on it that much, $75 <laughs> is... Yeah, and doing um, 
Oh, I forget. I think I'm, I've done about 500 rides so far this year, so... Um, they must hate you. <laughs> you're trashing their bikes because you're using them. <laughs> well, that, that's very good. That's, that's, that's good to see you actually using these things because I, mean, I used them when uh, I came the other day and I noticed that there was, there was different types. Some had um, side racks, some had big front racks. Is that different generations of them or have they deliberately done different it's, portage systems? It's, it's different generations. Our, our manufacturer and, and equipment supplier for the green bike is uh, B-Cycle. And as B-Cycle has evolved over time, they have made changes to their equipment. They made changes to the, the docks and the, the kiosks at the stations, and they've also made changes to the bikes. Uh, all of the equipment's still intercompatible, but you have uh, the, the initial bikes were a little bit heavier and had bike locks that you can uh, lock them with. The newer bikes are about 10 pounds lighter and they don't have the lock but most of the time you don't need the lock anyway. Uh, so yeah it's basically just changes over time in, in the bikes. And you even notice that in uh, like New York City with City Bike that uh, they have slightly different models of bikes as, as they've changed uh, the, you know, the equipment. Yeah, so in London, the, the, the tip is you go for number, because each one, is a, there's, there's numbers on each one of them. So it's the ones are the, the very first ones, and then they go up. So you, you always go for the 5,000. When I'm in London, <laughs> I look for the 5,000, because they're the latest models. Uh, they're the ones made by Pashley. They're the ones that haven't got steering problems. You don't often see them, right. because they're only slowly rolling out. But it's a good tip, just look for 5,000s, because that's going to be your best bike in, in London. Thanks to Mike Christensen, and thanks also to my earlier guest, Professor Bert Blocken. Details for both can be found on the show notes, which can be found on the website, which is the-spokesman.com. And thanks to you for listening, and for subscribing, and for telling your friends about the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. It's only 11 days into July, and already there have been two shows. There will definitely be a third this month, and I hope it'll be another genuinely roundtable affair, just like episode 193. But until then, get out there and ride. <laughs>